Peace be with you. Good morning. Um, welcome to Sojourn Oak Forest. Um, as Drew mentioned, I am uh, both the director of church planting and a member here at Sojourn Oak Forest, and it is uh, both a joy and a privilege to be able to open God's Word um, with you guys for a few moments. Um, last week, um, we started our series called Life Together. This is a series that uh, historically, across all of the sojourns in the city, um, we have done together. And so that means that uh, the content that we're walking through this morning, this, both the scriptures and, and uh, the, the stuff that we'll be talking out of those scriptures, um, is something that we're doing together with our brothers and sisters across the city in Spring Branch, uh, at Sojourn Heights, Sojourn Montrose, um, and beyond, Galleria as well. So um, excited to be doing that with them this morning as well, even though we don't share a common space. Um, but every year at Sojourn, we take a few weeks across all of those congregations, ultimately to refocus um, and to remind ourselves what we're doing together as a multi-congregational church. Um, over the past couple of years, our elders have sought um, to further clarify and strengthen the vision that Sojourn was planted with just shy of 11 years ago. Uh, And it's during this sermon series that we hope to present some of that clarification in order to strengthen our shared identity and to spur us on to the glorious task that we share together of seeing neighbors and neighborhoods reconciled to God and to one another through making disciples, multiplying parishes, and planting churches. Before we jump into the scriptures, will you just uh, pray with me? Father, uh, thank you for this opportunity to be gathered together as your people called by your name. We know, Father, this morning that there is work to be done that we cannot accomplish for ourselves. We know, God, uh, that you are about the business of transforming your people from one degree of glory to the next. And so we ask, God, that this morning as we come into contact with your scriptures, that you would take it upon yourself, that your Holy Spirit would do the work that you've commissioned him to do. Transformation in us for your glory and for the joy of our city. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so this morning, we're going to talk about um, saturation and simplicity. These are two uh, values that, that guide what we do um, at Sojourn Houston, um, and we'll take those in turn. Uh, to begin, um, we'll start in a piece of scripture that we read just a few moments ago um, in Genesis chapter 1. So it shouldn't be too hard to find if you have a Bible. Um, I'd encourage you to open it. There's one in the pew uh, with you as well. Would love for your eyes to make contact with the word of God this morning, but we'll be in verse 26. And this is what it says. Hear the word of the Lord. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps. On the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So what's happening here? Well, in Genesis chapter 1, God creates man and woman in his own image. The glorious image of God is quite literally breathed into humankind. And so, in some stupefying way, we are glorious in the way that God is glorious to a not insignificant degree. And so the question then becomes, to what end does God breathe his glory into us, into humankind? Is there an end that God has in mind? Or is this all some odd experiment wherein God plays an observant but ultimately respectfully distant cosmic scientist? Well, I think... We are given a clue what the answer to that question is in verse 28 that we just read, right? What does it say? God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. When we read this, it becomes clear that there is an intended end. That God creates with intention and that that intention is for his glory in humankind to be multiplied and cover the earth. The earth would itself be covered with the glory of God in humankind. Adam and Eve were to come together or commune, and in their coming together or communion, they would become fruitful. It is in this that God's intent to saturate the earth with his glory is revealed. And so Genesis 1 serves its purpose. It tells us what God intends to do with this creation that he has created and created in his words, very, very good. So when we say at Sojourn that we are committed to saturation as a value, this is ultimately what we mean. We mean that we pursue the original command of God for his people to fill the earth with his glory by multiplying his presence in the church into every corner of urban Houston. So all we're really saying in all of that fancy language, when we talk about saturation, what we're saying is we want to take responsibility for seeing the glory of God multiplied in Houston. We want to see the glory of God in his followers loving and serving like Jesus multiplied into every corner of urban Houston. Now, This is obviously, Genesis 1 is a grand vision for the world that belongs to the Lord, and it's certainly a grand vision that belongs to us and that we've now taken responsibility for in the city of Houston. But what does it actually look like to saturate Houston and or, perhaps more importantly and more pointedly for this congregation, Oak Forest? Here's a couple of ways that we've tried to answer those questions for Sojourn specifically, right? The first is this. God gave us a very clear geography in Genesis 1, right? The whole world. 
We were to subdue the, the whole world. Now, the reality is that we are limited in scope, right? We are small. We are one part of this giant earth. But we believe that he's called us into this global mission, but we also believe that he's called us to what Acts 17 calls allotted periods and boundaries of our dwelling place. So while God is about the work of saturating the earth with his glory, we've been called to our respective corners of that earth, our geography. So for Sojourn, that's Houston, but for Oak Forest, that's 610 to the south, Tidwell to the north, 45 to the east, and 290 to the west. In defining a geography, In taking ownership of a neighborhood, what we are saying is that we are going to take responsibility for seeing saturation happen within these boundaries. Now, so there might come a follow-up question to that, right? If we have a mission, we have a, a clear vision for what God wants to do, to see his glory saturate the earth, and we believe that he's called us to responsibility for this small section of that great big earth that we all inhabit of oak forest, what does it mean or what does it look like for saturation to actually take place? How do we measure saturation? What would it actually mean for Sojourn Oak Forest to saturate this neighborhood? There are a lot of uh, sociological studies on cultural tipping points, and I, I don't think that there's necessarily a, a broad consensus in any of them, and you can get all kinds of different numbers and factoids and things like that. However, from what we've been able to read and understand, we've decided that for Sojourn to meaningfully engage in saturating a neighborhood, we believe that that means one parish of 10 to 20 members for every 1,000 people in population in a given geography. So that means if there's 60,000 people in a neighborhood, we are going to aim for 60 neighborhood parishes in that neighborhood. Now, that's a, I, I think that's a pretty aggressive, aggressive goal. Um, At the end of the day, though, saturation is going to take more than just us, right? I'm thankful in, in thinking of those numbers and in thinking of population and just how many people there are in Houston and in this neighborhood. I'm thankful to know that God has other gospel-believing, gospel-preaching, gospel-living churches among us, and that this work of saturation is a task that we share with them. And some of our saying, we want one parish for every 1,000 people in population, is acknowledging that reality. Attempting to be aggressive for the sake of sojourn, while at the same time recognizing that the church in Houston is at work. This is how we play our part in the broader work of God in our neighborhoods. I want to pause before moving on. Um, Everything that I'm saying is aggressively confident in what we believe God wants to do in our city with or without us, right? We, We believe that God is about the work of Genesis 1, that he's doing that, 
He is saturating the earth with his glory. I believe that God is a promise-keeping and sovereign God. I believe that what God decrees comes to pass, that if he says he's going to do something, he's going to do it. So if he says he's going to fill the earth with his glory in mankind, he's going to do that. But maybe you're thinking to yourself, can we realistically accomplish these things in our lifetime? Can we see Houston saturated with the glory of God in gospel-revived people living and loving and serving as Jesus has taught us to? My answer might surprise you, maybe not. Depends on if you think I'm a rational human being or not. But my answer to that question is no. No, it can't be accomplished in our lifetime, right? Our vision for church can't be accomplished in our lifetime, but the The reality is that we should want that. We should want to have a vision for what the church can be in our city that extends beyond our time here on earth. Why is that? Well, Because it does two things. The first is this. It absolutely ups the urgency factor, right? There is no shortage of work when it comes to saturating Houston or Oak Forest with the glory of God. No shortage of work. And so we need to be diligent in that labor, diligent in that work, thoughtful, intentional, measuring our time and utilizing it well. It ups the urgency factor. But then second, it also keeps us humble as we recognize that ultimately what God has called us to do in the city, what we believe the work of the church in the city is that we are a part of extends beyond us. This, again, as we prayed earlier, is work that is ultimately God's to do, that we are relying upon him, his saving grace, his saving power, his empowering Holy Spirit in us to accomplish this work among us. And our neighbors. As a side note, though a very important aside, this is also why we must take the call to disciple our children so seriously. Because they're the ones who are going to carry this vision of God's glory saturating Oak Forest, Houston, and beyond into the future. However, I want to be clear about something. There is a temptation or there is a, uh, a danger in having these conversations about vision and the grand things that the Lord wants to do and how much labor and effort and difficulty is going to be involved in that. And I, I, I want to be clear-minded about those things and I'm excited about those things. And at the same time, a pastor I admire, Jeff Vanderstelt, said this, Jesus' saturation can't happen through you until it's happened to you. And so, brothers and sisters, I do want to pause for a moment and, and, and just remind us that the mission of God is not something we engage in in hopes that we'll earn God's favor. 
making disciples, multiplying parishes, planting churches, saturating the earth with God's glory, taking ownership of Oak Forest in Houston, those are not means by which we're trying to impress him. These grand visions are good, they're helpful, but they cannot and should not obscure our understanding of Christianity at its heart, at its core. I want to be clear that none of this matters if we miss Jesus. It's become quite obvious in recent times that one can grow a ministry or a platform in his name, but apart from his gospel and kingdom. In some ways, there's a sense in which the church mirrors the world. It's a situation where the impressive people hold the microphone. But Jesus saves broken and incomplete people. And following Jesus, coming to him in faith, is at its core an acknowledgement of need. And so this morning, we may be looking at this grand mission. We might be looking at these wonderful things that we want to do and that we want to see happen in our neighborhood and in our city and in our world and think to ourselves, I am totally inadequate to the task. It is so far beyond me, both in skill, ability, righteousness, right? You may be thinking to yourself, or feeling that sense of, I'm not impressive. I'm not good enough, or I'm not strong enough, or whatever adjective you need to put in that blank. I'm not blank enough. I want to be clear, the mission of Jesus is yours to participate in. It has always been God's intention to choose normal, everyday people and to show his amazing power and glory through them. So again, when we are confessing need, when we are acknowledging our inability, when we are acknowledging our, our, our lack of whatever it might be, we are at the exact right spot for God to use us. Because it's in that acknowledgement, it's in that weakness, the Bible says, that God is pleased to display his power. That's precisely the point. It's precisely the point that his power would be made evident in us, in our weakness. And so listen, it is my prayer and it is the prayer of our elders that before any saturation, in fact, it's necessary, before any saturation would happen through us, that this understanding of Jesus who so lovingly and desirously meets us in our need would saturate your heart completely with wonder at his love, grace, mercy, kindness, and care, that you'd be enamored with the Savior so completely that our doing for him would flow freely from our comprehensive being in him. It's this conviction that the ordinary people of God are his means of glorifying himself in the world that guides us to our next value, which is simplicity. God's intent to cover the earth with his glory through humankind's fruitful multiplying is revealed in Genesis. Genesis. 
But it's revealed not just in theory or in concept. It's revealed, I believe, in practice. It's obvious from the creation account that God could have easily filled the earth with glory-carrying humans instantaneously. Right? This is the same God who said, let there be light, and there was light. This is the same God who said, let there be a separation between the waters. This is the same guy who said... All of the things that he said came to be in an instant. He spoke and it was. In our minds and in our culture of everything on demand, this seems like both the most productive and effective choice as well as the most satisfying, right? Like God, if you want an earth filled with your glory, just do it. All you have to do is say it and it happens. You and I, we have very little patience for delayed gratification. Given the choice between having it then and having it now, I think we'd all choose the option of now. In fact, so much of Scripture seems to allude to that being at the very heart of our ongoing battle with sin. It's not that God didn't want Adam and Eve to have the knowledge of good and evil. It's that he didn't want them to have it yet. God gave Abraham a son through Sarah, but that came after Abraham tried to have one himself through Hagar. In contrast, King David's faithfulness is most clearly evidenced in having the opportunity time and time again to take what was promised him on his own terms. But he refused to do so and waited for the crown to be given to him. Jesus' temptation mirrored this, right? As Satan offered him the world and all of its kingdoms, something that he knew he would have but didn't have yet. Satan is saying, look, I can expedite the process. The counter-narrative to our bigger, better, faster world seems to be a life of commitment to things that are smaller, slower, and unimpressive. After all, Jesus himself had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, Isaiah 53 says. So what do we mean when we say we value simplicity? We mean this. Following the example of Jesus and the early church, we strive to lead simple lives and keep simple systems and structures for the sake of of missional engagement, radical generosity, and perpetual multiplication. While there's nothing inherently wrong with different programs and activities, and though many of us may have at one point benefited from hyper-focused church programming at some point, those programs and activities can complicate or slow down the process of saturation. Why? Because the more we fill our lives with church events and programs, the more we get pulled out of everyday life with people who don't yet know Jesus. Let's look at the early church. This will not be an unfamiliar portion of Scripture to you if you spent any amount of time in the church. Um, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is where we'll start. Hear the word of the Lord says this, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So what's happening here, right? Jesus has... uh, He's died, he's resurrected, he spent some, uh, some time on the earth ministering post his resurrection, ensuring that there are witnesses to his resurrection. He ascends into heaven, right? He says, it's better for you that I should leave because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. Then in Acts chapter 1, what happens? 120 disciples in the upper room praying, the Holy Spirit of God descends upon the disciples and the birth of the church is here. And here in Acts chapter 2, we see this church, the early church, the first church, our church, brothers and sisters. Living into this, this new institution. And I think all of us, if, if we've read these, we tend to read them somewhat, somewhat romantically. We're always like, man, like that's the church I want to be a part of. All of us at some point, likely, or maybe it's just me, have read these verses and said, if I had a time machine, that's where I'm going. But my question is this, (laughs) in what way are we not like that? And why? In what way are we not like what this describes and why? Is there a secret sauce that we're missing? I think when we read these verses, it's pretty clear that there's not. The same spirit that is in these brothers and sisters here is the spirit that lives in us. The spirit of God that came upon them at Pentecost is the same Spirit of God that lives in us here and now. If we are followers of Jesus, if we've called upon His name for salvation, if we've trusted in His grace, if we've trusted that His sacrifice and His perfectly lived life is enough, then that Holy Spirit is within us. It's on us. It rests upon us. It fills us. It works through us. So God's Spirit at Pentecost, check. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, check. We have that. Fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers, check. They're doing all of this together, check. Right? There's no real secret sauce to what is happening here in Acts. And what we believe Jesus is asking us to do now, that he hasn't given us already. He's given us his spirit. He's given us leaders. He's given us each other. It really is that simple. The early church exploded in the radical simplicity of God's people, empowered by God's spirit, and equipped by God's servant leaders, demonstrating and declaring the gospel daily among their neighbors. That's it. The early church exploded in the radical simplicity of God's people, empowered by God's spirit, and equipped by God's servant leaders, 
demonstrating and declaring the gospel daily among their neighbors. So listen, while simplicity doesn't guarantee an explosion of revival among us, we do believe that it better positions us for it. When we're unencumbered by excess, we are free to maneuver as the Spirit leads, which is why we want to strive to be a people of what we call margin. A people of margin. Now, what do I mean by that? Let me put some definition on it. What we mean by being a people of margin is that we don't want every minute of time, scent of money, jewel of energy, already committed to some place, thing, or activity. We want space in our calendars, budgets, and physical energy so that we can freely give to others our time, money, and energy. In the same way that we want to see that on an individual and family level, we want to see that across our congregations. We want our church calendars, church budgets, and church energy to have space for those around us. The church and acts position themselves to meet needs preemptively. Right? It doesn't say that needs arose and then they figured out how to meet them. It says that they were already prepared for that eventuality, right? It says they created margin by selling their possessions and belongings, and then they distributed those proceeds as any had need. That's how we want to be. Anticipating opportunities to give more of what we have for the sake of others. Imagine in a world where the most common response to the question, how are you doing, is busy, what an oddity it might be to invite people into the real peace of Christ that we ourselves experience when we slow down, create margin, and orient ourselves to caring for those around us. That kind of life would demand an explanation for which the only answer is purely and simply Jesus. I believe this is what Peter means when he says to Christians to honor the Lord Christ as holy. He was referring to setting Christ apart in our hearts as the one that we should live for as well as the primary example for how we should live. He went on to say, Peter went on to say that they should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. In other words, live in such a way that the only explanation is purely and simply Jesus. Listen, Peter's not talking about having a a conversation about apologetics necessarily. He's saying live strangely enough that people go, what is that? In a world of angst, anxiety, and turmoil, what could this steady, peaceful, uncompromising presence do? A shared table, an open front door, a full pantry, an invitation to rest. This is the invitation of Jesus to those of us who are weary and heavy laden, is it not? Come, put your burdens down. It is this same invitation that he's given us to hand deliver to the people of Oak Forest on doorsteps, office cubicles, coffee shop registers, and brewery bar stools. Who knows, maybe even a church pew. This is the kind of hospitality we want to extend in our homes, our neighborhoods, this gathering, and beyond. Non-coincidentally, we firmly believe that this level of simplicity actually accelerates 
saturation. As we engage our neighborhood unencumbered by that which is unnecessarily complex. That's not to say that there are not complex things we'll have to manage as we make disciples, multiply parishes, and plant churches. However, it is to say that we will be committed to diligently uprooting that which is unnecessarily complex. So, brothers and sisters, I would just leave us asking one very simple question. If we believe that God wants to saturate our neighborhood with his glory and he wants to use us to do it. And if we believe that we can accelerate that process, mindfully engage in that process by living lives that are simple. How? How can we simplify our individual and collective lives so that we have margin to invite our neighbors and neighborhoods to the beauty of a simple life in Jesus as his glory covers the earth home to home block to block, and city to city. It's as simple as that. It really is. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you again for this opportunity to be gathered together. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for the invitation to rest, to recline at table with you. pray, Father, that um, we would diligently, compellingly extend that invitation to rest to our neighbors and to our neighborhood, and that we do it together. Pray, God, that you'd make us a congregation that is devoted to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to breaking of bread and the prayers. Pray, God, that you would cause awe to come upon every soul. God, that wonders and signs would be done among us. That all of us who believe would be together, have all things in common. Pray that you would call us right now, God, to position ourselves. To be prepared to meet the needs of both those inside the church and outside. And Lord, that day by day, attending one another's homes, breaking bread together, we would receive the food you've given us with glad and generous hearts, praising you, and that we would have favor with all the people of Oak Forest and Houston. And that, Lord, you might be glorified as you add people to the number of your church, to the number of your people in Houston day by day those who are being saved. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.